if you have multiple claims, that really affects your eligibility and rates. But they will rate on everything back to five years at least. Welcome to the Hybrid Real Estate Professional Podcast, where we dive deep into the intersection of career, family, and finances. Learn the mindsets, tips, and strategies to help you on your personal journey to build a life of abundance and purpose for you and your family. Now, here's your host, Karen Amin. Welcome back to another episode of the Hybrid Real Estate Professional Podcast. Today, I am joined by a special guest, Ren McFadden. Ren is the owner of the McFadden Agency, an insurance broker and affiliate of Goosehead Insurance. He and I met over the summer and he quickly earned my business by helping me save thousands of dollars and improve coverage across my entire rental portfolio. He is also a real estate investor himself with two units in Chattanooga and a partnership stake in a quadplex in Nashville. We talk about the state of the insurance industry, the value of working with a broker, as well as tactical tips for avoiding common pitfalls for investors in the insurance industry. Ren also shares the story of his personal investing journey, taking risks and overcoming fears to start his own agency. You are going to love this interview. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Hybrid Real Estate Professional Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ren McFadden. Ren is an insurance agent, Goosehead, and he is also a fellow real estate investor. And as I learned recently, he is a fellow Tennessee volunteer alumni like myself. Go Vols. Uh, But I would love to welcome Ren and hear in your own words a bit about you and, and your background. Yeah, Aaron, thanks a ton for having me on. And yeah, excited to be here and talk a little bit about insurance. Hopefully can... Provide some value on that front and yeah, have some relatability on the investor front. But yeah, my name's Ren. I've been in insurance for just over five years now. Started straight out of school and have worked in a couple different markets. Currently located in Denver and we've been here for about three years. So that's where our agency's located, but we operate all over and yeah, just look to place folks with the insurance company that's going to best fit their needs and thus charge them the least. Very nice. And you're also a a fellow investor, as I learned, which I didn't know until after we started working together. But can you tell us a little bit about your journey getting into real estate as an investor as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Insurance is closely tied to the real estate market. We focus on personal lines, property, and casualty. So have worked with hundreds and hundreds of home buyers. And the people that refer those home buyers to me are the people on the lending side or the real estate agents working with those clients. Learned a lot from picking those people's brains. And then as I worked with more investors in different markets, I started to see the passive income side of things and working with the lenders and the real estate agents, they make it well known how the barriers to entry are not as high as you may see them from, from afar, from a lack of experience. What this show is all about is um, proving how the barriers of entry are not as high as people think, figuring out creative ways to get into real estate. It's a very long-term game. You usually don't realize the value of it or the potential of it until sometimes 5, 10, even 20 years in. But getting into it is definitely one of the biggest first steps you can take. So that's great. I think you you mentioned before we hit record, you have a couple of units in Chattanooga and then you have a... Um, partnership stake. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In, uh, in Nashville? Yeah. And it's also just, it's a fourplex. So it's not a commercial unit or anything like that. But yeah, went in with a couple of folks on one of those. Very cool. 
And I want to circle back to one thing you said. So you were talking about the network of people and how insurance, you get a lot of referrals and connections from lenders and agents. That's actually how you and I met when I was buying a primary home. My wife and I moved over the summer down to Houston, Texas from Washington State. We met a lender who we were referred to through our agent and that lender referred us to you. And that's how it always works in this industry. And this was the first time we owned eight rentals. And previously we had bought all of our insurance through USAA, which I've been banking with USAA since I was a kid. And so I just defaulted to that. And I learned a, a, a tough lesson. USA didn't do anything wrong. Uh, I was getting pretty decent rates. But what happened was it wasn't until I talked to you that I realized, hey, there, there's some savings potential here. There's some areas where the coverage I'm looking for, there were a couple gaps in the coverage I had that you helped me identify. And I had always heard that working with an agent on, for insurance can be advantageous, but I had never met one that I guess had shown me the ropes in a way that resonated with me. So first of all, I have to thank you because I think you, you saved me a few thousand dollars across my portfolio and also just helped beef up my coverage. But I want to just talk about how, what do you view your role in an investor? If an investor comes to you with a portfolio, like how do you view that relationship? Is that a long-term relationship? Is it a, I'll help you out one time? And do you have a, a lot of investors that you work with? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. I'm, I'm a little bit biased and there's a couple different ways to buy insurance and say a state farm, they're what we call captives and they're great company. They have great products, but they have a single product. And regardless of who you are, or what the risk is, that's what they can sell to you. So if that product doesn't meet or isn't specifically designed for you and that risk, then it can just end up costing you more, even if the coverage is synonymous with a different company. Having a go-to agent on that front, I think is important because there's a hundred different characteristics that go into these rates. And if you're an investor and you're buying multiple properties, the odds that a single product is going to be the best place for you on all eight or all 10 or all 20 is pretty slim, especially if there are different situations where some are short-term rentals or long-term rentals may not have a product that even fits it at all for that risk. And a lot of those companies have an agent too, who can be a great like educational resource. But the other side of the broker is you're working through a person who's placing business with these companies. We don't work directly for State Farm or Nationwide. Our interest is the client's interest, whereas the captive company there, I don't know if there's bias or not, but it, they're trained to write the product a certain way. Whereas ours is strictly coverage for the client. I think you're right on point where there's different products that fit different situations. So I have eight rentals across three states. Those three states have different risks. They have different weather patterns. They have different regulatory standards in, in some cases. I remember when we moved to Texas, I was <laughs> part of why I got in touch with you is because the quotes I was getting on our house were crazy. It was like four grand to insure our primary home and in Nevada, for example, we had a, a policy with the equivalent coverage that was like 800 bucks a year and false equivalency in my head. I'm like, Hey, why is it $800 in Nevada? But it's $4,000 in Texas. That was the first conversation I ever had with you is you explaining to me the differences and why that might be the case, the weather, the storms, some of the other risks that are associated with owning property in this area. And so those pieces of context uh, and education, I think are important to investors who may not understand every time they're going into a market, um, you know, what they're, what they're up against. 
especially when you're trying to cash flow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I can throw a huge wrench into things and in some of those markets where um, Texas, Florida, California have huge high rental potential and obviously the price points can vary drastically between those states, but insurance costing 800 and accounting for that on your balance sheet going into it versus it being 4,500 makes a big difference. Absolutely. So speaking of cash flow, big topic across a lot of the investing circles that I run in is the percentage of increase year over year on insurance. It's not just a kind of negligible normal inflation increase. Premiums some in some cases are jumping 20, 30, 40% uh, on renewals. And so even people with previously established portfolios are feeling really pinched and they're unable to raise rent to meet that inflated insurance cost. So I'm wondering if you have any commentary or context or advice even that you can provide to investors on, on what's causing that, what, if anything, they can do about it, and anything there. Yeah. What's causing it is it's generally inflation, but when you really laser in on it, there's a couple really big things going on, and that is the cost of replacing and repairing homes is higher than it's ever been. It's not really a secret, but particularly shingles, drywall, really like necessities to basically handle any claim. All of those things are up 20, 30, 35%. And so these companies, when they went to do their rates in 2022, they said, look, a new roof costs $15,000, for example. And we expect that this year we're going to get eight hailstorms, eight catastrophe hailstorms, which means they have to replace a lot of roofs in a certain area. The cost of that roof went from 15 to $25,000 and they got 25 hailstorms. So all these companies were just hemorrhaging cash and now they're just trying to return to profitability because we're seeing losses like Allstate in September, I think lost a billion dollars alone. State Farm had a $13 billion loss last year on auto alone. And every company that we work with as well is not any different. So they're all hurt. And then beyond that, the supply chain issues. So repairing and replacing is more expensive but the timeline to do it is longer, which until these claims last longer, which these companies have to put more resources towards and again, more money. And yeah, your ability to remediate that, it's because it's market-wide, it's not a single carrier that's dealing with this. It's literally everybody. So your ability to hedge against that is pretty minimal other than making sure that you're shopping and otherwise, yeah, you can raise deductibles. You can look for risks when you're purchasing that have characteristics that'll keep your rates lower. But in terms of investment properties that you already own, I guarantee probably anybody that sees this podcast is going to see an increase on their auto insurance. They're going to see it on any property that they own. Um, the best thing you can do is bargaining power. See if somebody else will do the same coverage for a cheaper amount. That's what I did when I came to you. Yeah. So did you say that also applies to auto? Auto is actually a little bit worse than the property side, which basically these companies, they, during COVID, nobody was driving. And so you saw them start to give money back to their customers as like appreciation. They cut their new business rates to try and acquire as much market share as possible. And then out of nowhere, everybody started driving again. And on top of that, they were out of practice and then repairing and replacing vehicles is more expensive than it's ever been. 2019 Lexus costs more now than it did in 2019. All of those things combined. We're seeing average rate increase of about 37% across the state of Texas. Other states aren't far behind. And 
Yeah, same deal with the supply chain as well. If you try to get into a body shop right now, I guarantee they'll have a horrifying wait time um, mm -hmm. where you're like, I just don't know if I can go that long without it, or you may even have two or three months before you can even get it to them. So. Sounds like I picked a great time to move to Texas. Yeah, Texas has some, some other things going on. One in three drivers are uninsured. And yeah, just some other risks alongside it, but it's, it's pretty rough right now. So you mentioned a couple, like there's very few levers an investor can pull. You can raise the deductible. You mentioned something. I'm not hundred percent sure I caught it. You said something about identifying risks, um, where maybe you can change coverage, uh, or pull something off of the policy. Is that what I heard? Yes. Yeah, sorry. I was like speaking in insurance there, but yeah, like you can look for, when I say risks, I really mean homes. So when you're looking at purchasing new properties, certain properties have, um, it may be a much older home. Um, it may have a much older roof. Uh, it may have just risks that go into those properties that are going to drive your premiums up. And so finding risks that are newer build homes or homes that have a recent roof replacement or negotiating that with the seller that can keep your rates down for an extended period of time. Whereas if you've got an older roof, it may be difficult to one, get insurance or insurance that will replace it at full value, at which point not only are you paying a higher premium, you also have this thing hanging over your head, no pun intended, in a roof that you might have to replace out of pocket. Yeah. So let's get a little more technical there because this is one of the things you educated me on when I was shopping for policies here in Houston. Because, you know, there were a couple of providers that were quoting me a lower amount, but they were including, I forget exactly what it's called, but something like a roof schedule, which is basically they take the age of the roof and they depreciate it a certain amount. And so if you file a claim, they will pay you based on the remaining life of the roof rather than the full replacement value. So it's a little bit disguised because the, it says they'll cover you on a roof replacement, but it's only a portion of the cost. And that was a concept I was not previously aware of. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, that's probably the place where I've seen the most people get burned the hardest. And actually somebody that you connected me with had was coming out of an experience like that where they had done their policies themselves through an online portal and unbeknownst to them, they had an endorsement called actual cash value. And so roofs can be covered at actual cash value or replacement cost. The actual cash value, if the roof is 10 years old, they'll say, look, you've used up about 70% of that roof's life. So we'll pay you for 30% of a new roof minus your deductible, which in Texas is deductibles are mandated to be much higher than some other areas in the country. So some people will come out with $0, a claim on their record, and then having to pay for a new roof out of pocket. Replacement costs, on the other hand, they'll pay for a new roof regardless of the age. And that's something that we do not write homes at actual cash value because we've seen so many people get burned on it. And people think, hey, it mitigates cost. It's a good idea, which it always is until something happens and you're out $20,000. So... I think in addition to it being slightly deceptive, because it's not that obvious to an untrained eye, like you said, you can also end up with a claim on your record and then getting paid $5,000 on a $20,000 roof repair. That's not good no matter how you slice it because you're still paying out of pocket and you end up with the claim, which is, yeah, no, no good if you're an investor, especially if you have multiple properties. Totally.
So there's one other thing that I learned from you that I want to make sure everyone in, in my audience knows, which is that when you own properties in an LLC, if you buy it under your name, you get a conventional mortgage, and then you do a quit claim, which is a pretty common practice where you're essentially conveying the ownership to an LLC that you own for liability reasons, that's good and fine. But when you go to make a claim, an insurance claim, even if you name your LLC as an insured, if your personal name is the one the policy is under, it will count across any other property that has your name on it. Not sure if I explained that very well, but essentially your risk and your claims are cross-collateralized with all of your properties. So I say this, here's an example. We had three separate claims across three different properties within 24 months. They were completely unrelated. They were actually in three different states. Yet those claims and each of those properties was in a different LLC, but each of those claims counted against us. So when I called Ren back in, whenever that was, June or July, and I said, hey, I'm looking to get insurance on my property in Houston for a primary. That's a fourth state. And it was a primary house. And he said, we just showed that you have three claims in the last 24 months. That's really hurting our ability to get a competitive rate. So I share all this because that was a kind of nasty uh, surprise because I thought I had done a good job separating all my properties into these different LLCs and named the individual LLCs on my policy only to find out that they were still cross-collateralized. So can you explain just what is this specific maneuver? Does every insurance company offer this? What can investors do to avoid that scenario? Yeah, every company operates a little bit differently, but for the most part, everybody has the ability to rate on both claims from a property. So your primary home in Houston, when you're purchasing that, even though you haven't owned it in the past, they can rate on claims that were filed on that address, as well as any claim that you filed personally. So if you have a theft claim from Washington and a water claim from Iowa, um, they can pull all of that and say, hey, this guy files claims. We don't want him at all. We don't want him as much. So it can affect your premium, um, obviously, by raising it. And it can also affect your eligibility um, with a lot of different companies. Now, that being said, there's always an option. There's some companies that don't rate on claims for the home if you weren't the owner at the time. Um, there's companies that don't rate on claims from other households as long as they were rental properties. But if you had occupied them, they do. So it's all a little nuanced. But long story short, yeah, to your point, if you are the named insured on the policy, they're going to pull that information based on your name and date of birth. And they can use it against you. Most people do use it against you. But there's always a way to find somebody who is either eligible despite the claims or will allow you to exclude them. But I guess I say always, that's not necessarily true. If it's on your primary home and it's you and there's others from other properties, then yeah, it's just always going to hurt you negatively. But the defense against this, so if I was buying a brand new rental house and I had my you know, I was buying it in Iowa, which is one of my markets. And I have my Iowa LLC, which my wife and I are full owners of. The defense against what happened to me is to find a company that will write a policy directly for that LLC and not mention our personal names at all. Is that correct? Yeah. And that does more than just your claims record, but 
that's the benefit that I see the most because an insurance from an investor standpoint, putting your LLC or putting your insurance policies directly under an LLC with no mention of your name, it keeps anybody from being able to bring you into a court. Whereas if you're listed on that policy anywhere, additional insured, or you're the insured and your LLC is the additional insured, you can end up in that courtroom one way or the other. So it's one, a liability thing and two, yeah, it mitigates your your risk of being rated on for claims from other properties that have, like you said, nothing to do with the next one that you're purchasing. Gotcha. And it does come at us. It can come at an additional cost though, to write policies directly to an LLC, correct? Yes. There are fewer companies that one take policies that don't list a person. And then, yeah, it's primarily eligibility. There's just fewer companies that do it. So you're just confined to the rate from one of those five companies versus the 20 that would take it if you were just an individual. Gotcha. And so by that same logic that you're anything with your name on it is cross-collateralized. If you own three properties under the same LLC and you have policies written to that LLC, does one claim affect the other properties? It does not. So it's specific to that property. Yep. See, that's pretty slick. And that's something I wish I knew six years ago when I started buying all these properties. And certainly I wish I knew that before I made these three claims thinking they were separated. So I would say that's one huge takeaway I'm hoping people get from this from this episode. And when people are seeking these out, is it an agent such as yourself the best way to find these options? Yeah. Yeah, going back to talking about working with a broker versus one of these captive companies, we're always going to have a product that is eligible for that. Whereas I don't know which captive companies are eligible to write policies that way. And then on top of that, working with a broker, going back to not working for the specific company that's also insuring the risk, you have a third party unbiased resource where it's like, Hey, Ren, I'm thinking about filing this claim. I'm wondering if it makes sense. And then you talk through, okay, does it meet your deductible? Okay, how is this going to affect properties? What are the current market conditions? And in your circumstance, those claims that were popping up from everything, we were able to get coverage, right? Coverage at reasonable rates, better rates than where you were coming from. And that was awesome. But the market for property insurance is, these companies are losing a lot of money. They're very stringent on accepting new business. And so those claims are becoming more and more of an issue, more of an issue than we've ever seen in the history of insurance. So in 2019, is this as applicable? Probably not. It's still something to talk about and be aware of, but now it's really messing with people's ability to get insurance, to cash flow properties, to keep premiums stable, and honestly, to afford their house. So we can't change the past, right? But if you're like me, who I had those claims in short order. I can't erase them. Other people listening to this might've made a claim in the last couple of years. There's nothing that's inherently wrong with making claims, but how long should we expect these things to be held against us or stay on our records? 90% of companies only go back five years on property. There are a couple that go back as far as seven, but generally in the last three years, if you have multiple claims, that's where it really affects your eligibility and rates. But they will rate on everything back to five years at least. Gotcha. And so outside of making claims, what would make somebody uninsurable? Uninsurable. 
truly, we've got a product for pretty much everything. We have a product for everything that's ever come across my desk. And so truly uninsurable beyond pre-existing damage where risk is even that we've still got an option for it. Yeah. There's, there's really nothing that'll do that unless you're in California or Florida, but I don't operate in those states. So I, I know you just said you don't operate there, but let's talk about that for a second. Cause those are heavily populated, very popular states. So what are investors supposed to do in those areas? Honestly, I've never seen anything like it. I work with a lot of people that have been in the industry a lot longer than I have. They've never seen anything like it. And frankly, I don't know. California specifically, we've seen every major player in the space pretty much pull out. There's some local carriers that are available. Those are places where you can find some uninsurable risks due to fire zones, due to um, other weather patterns. And then there's other things going on in the state like high fraudulence of claims, a lot of theft claims. Auto is just as bad in California. But both California and Florida do have a version of what's called a fair plan which basically is a government subsidized program to make sure that people can live in homes or get loans on homes. So they provide insurance at a certain rate. Doesn't mean it's affordable. And there are things that they'll say, hey, we can't insure this even as a subsidized government agency. So one thing I don't understand, is this permanent? Or like what could possibly turn this trend around? And also, I'm not in any way trying to sound like a fear monger, but is, are there other states that are potentially at risk of having the same thing happen? Are oh, there other areas? Yeah. Is this forever? Um, so we're starting to see carriers return to profitability marginally. Now the days of, you know, the rates that you had in 2019 for your insurance, those are gone. Um, in terms of a rate, this is looking like it's going to be forever and it might even get a little bit worse before it gets better. We are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of our carriers are coming back with better combined ratios, which is basically the difference between how much they paid out in claims and how much they collected in premiums. And our kind of key carrier that we look to is progressive. They're seemingly always one step ahead of the market and they aim to stay right on a 96% loss ratio, which means they pay out 96% of what they collect and keep the rest. And that number for them, if they go to 97%, they start raising their rates. And so it slows down growth a little bit. They're charging people more. And when they get to 95%, they start lowering their rates a little bit because 96% is their perfect balance of growth as well as still turning a good profit. They reported an 89% loss ratio in Q3 of this year. So they're well below that 96%. So they'll start to give back some rate, but they're priced above a lot of the market right now because they needed a drastically slow growth this year. They're like ahead of the pack. And when that starts to happen, we start to see other carriers that are probably going to stabilize and be able to come back into these markets, which gives the client a little bit more bargaining power. But I don't think rates are really going to go down materially. So yeah, basically you'll have a lot more options probably starting in Q1, Q2 as a conservative guess of next year. But you'll be paying more than you did in 2020, 2021, in a year prior. And then, yeah, going from there, talking about your next point, which was. Are there other states this could happen to? Yeah, definitely. Texas is one of them. 
there's very few carriers left in the Southeast Texas area. So Harris County, Houston area, that's an extremely tough place. Dallas-Fort Worth is pretty intense as well. They get hailstorms every day of the summer at 3 p.m. And with increased cost of construction, it's just not sustainable for a lot of these carriers. States like Louisiana struggling. Colorado is putting together a fair plan right now to try and not become what California is dealing with in a couple of years. People are trying to be proactive as opposed to reactive, but at the same time, there's only so much you can do with these difficult weather, weather patterns that we're seeing a lot more of. And is that the primary driver of this problem is extreme weather conditions? Yeah, it's that's a lot of it. That plus inflation is just a lethal combo. Got it. But that went about the 96%, what'd you say it was the payout to collection yeah, ratio? They call it a loss um, ratio. That, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So if they're getting into a more favorable ratio there, then they may decide it's okay to come back into some of these markets because there's so much market share they, there that they can regain a lot of business. And maybe it's just a back and forth slide over time. But I've got to imagine skipping out on a state with 40 million people, it's not an easy decision for any company, regardless of what your business is. So there must be some merit behind that. Yeah. And part of it is, and part of what is driving some of these states to have issues is every department of insurance is state regular. So the department of insurance allows carriers to raise their rates a certain amount. And it has to be deemed, for lack of a better term, fair. And in certain states, these companies say, hey, we're not profitable. We need to raise our rates to this amount. And the Department of Insurance will reject their ability to do that. And then there's some other nuances with states like California, where California doesn't allow insurance companies to rate on credit. Every other state in the country does, to my knowledge. That makes everybody pay a little bit of a higher premium. And then the insurance companies can't get the data that they want to get an actual rate on a person. And yeah, it just makes them unable to make money or unwilling to risk it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Are those elected positions? I don't know. I would think so, but honestly, I don't know. We'll have to take that down as homework to go find out. And if it is, now I have to pay attention to that position yeah. if you're a real estate investor. Make sure you're getting people in that are representing your position on that matter. Yeah, I don't know what's better, them allowing companies to raise rates higher or all the companies having to leave the market. If California is a case study, then probably letting the carriers raise the rates. But yeah, can't say for sure. It's an interesting thing to be watching. As an everyday investor, you feel really helpless. And you mentioned Harris County being one of the places that is becoming more and more difficult. As I've said multiple times throughout this interview, I picked a great time to move to Harris County. People live here. It's the fourth most populated metropolitan area in the country. California is the most populous state. So it's just an interesting thing to observe from an outsider's perspective. But you've done a good job of kind of boiling down like, hey, this is what's happening. These are some specific tactical things you can do as a defense. And here's what's out of your control. And I've always believed that it's important to accept that we can't control certain things. And these are things to consider when you're picking where you want to invest, finding places with more moderate weather and maybe places that are less susceptible to that risk. 
that's one factor out of many. Many of those markets that are less have less extreme weather are more expensive, right? So it's just it's multi-dimensional figuring out where you want to invest in real estate, how you're going to cash flow. Uh, but insurance is all about protecting your downside risk. Yes, it's an expense. It's something you have to pay. You have to pay premiums. It's frustrating when premiums go up a lot. It eats your cash flow. But what's probably more frustrating is your house burning down and you having no coverage. So it's just, it's all a balancing act. So what is your job and your line of work done for you when it comes to your approach to investing? And also, second part of that question is, do you plan to continue investing in real estate on your own as well? Yeah, that's my line of work. I've seen a lot of people get burned on insurance. That's certainly an approach for me is identifying states where things happen less often. Because regardless of if you're covered or not, a claim is always not something you want to do. And so, yeah, identifying locations where less catastrophes occur is definitely something that I look at heavily. And then, yeah, just being in a relationship business where we're so closely tied to those other entities. It's, we're at the bottom of the the chain of a house transaction. You go out, you get pre-approved with the lender, or maybe you've already found a real estate agent, then you get pre-approved. You start looking at houses, you meet an attorney if you're in certain states, some states do it by title. And then the last step of that process, a lot of the time is them saying, oh, wait, you need insurance. Have you gotten insurance yet? And so, yeah, talking with people that have been through the entirety of the process and then just having the ability to pick their brain um, and figure out why they're doing the things that they're doing. That's what I enjoy about sales in the first place. And yeah, getting to do that with people that are very knowledgeable many times over and have a wealth of knowledge to share and they're willing to share it while we're discussing the elements of their house and what they've experienced in the industry before. Yeah, all that just culminated into seeing the upside in the passive income as well as getting connected with people that could make it happen and walk me through making it happen. And then, yeah, just getting a little bit lucky in there. Yeah, do I continue to plan investing? I do. At this specific moment in time, there's a couple things that I want to have capital on hand for from my business standpoint, and there's some investment opportunities there that are a higher priority for me right now. But I'm very thankful that I got in when I did. And part of building a relationship with some of these people in the industry was sponsoring their events on house hacking or sponsoring an event on just home buying seminars and ways to do it. And one of them made a really great point that the learning curve that you have in year one is going to pay so many dividends, regardless of if it was like the best investment ever or um, just barely cash flow. And not only that, but it also gives you a place where you have equity to to build off of that's owning an asset is giving you the capital resource to go out and really build wealth, which I think from reading your newsletter, that's really your story is obtaining a couple assets very early on. You were fortunate in the sense that they appreciated. And if you look at history, always appreciates if you look at a long enough time window, um, and then going back, grabbing equity from those and just replicating. So yeah, I'm very thankful to have started when I did. I'm excited to continue to right this second. I have a couple other priorities, but yeah, as the business grows and more capital, definitely my intention. Very cool. And I imagine you've seen some pretty crazy claims or at least heard of some pretty crazy claims, right? Like 
for me, I don't live in the world where people are constantly filing for all these emergency expenses or big CapEx events. And that's probably an everyday occurrence for you. So if you have been around that and you're not scared away from investing, that's a good sign for all of us. Yeah. I think. Yeah, definitely. And scared money doesn't make money at the end of the day. So yeah, you can always be fearful of the what ifs, but uh, you're never going to know those what ifs if you don't go out and learn about them. And I used to be very afraid of failure and a couple of events in my life I worked really hard at. I told a lot of people I was going to do it, even though it was a scary thing to do. And I ended up failing, but I learned more in that process than I ever would have if I sat on my laurels. And I think that's pretty synonymous with real estate is if you never even attempt it, even if it goes south, it's like looking at it saying, what's the absolute worst thing that can happen here? Is it losing $10,000? Is it losing $100,000? And then figuring out where your risk balance is and saying, okay, the worst possible thing is X. Odds are that's not going to happen. Knowing your worst case and then seeing the potential upside and saying, hey, this is where I'm comfortable. I think that's an important sort of building block or learning piece. So I love that as an exercise. Yeah. What's the worst case scenario? Your example, you said it, I could lose $10,000. Okay. What happens if I lose $10,000? Still alive, right? I still have my skills. I still have my knowledge, uh, potentially still have my job, right? There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of ways you can recover from a loss or a failure if you're taking a, a shot which anyone investing in real estate, you're taking risk. You're probably not listening to this podcast if you don't have at least a little bit of risk tolerance. Um, but yeah, figuring out that balance. And, and I really like what you said about you stated publicly an ambitious goal. And even though you, you weren't able to meet that specific goal, you learned a lot from it. And I would be willing to bet that the people that you told, they weren't like, oh man, I'm never going to believe anything he says ever again. <laughs> In, in many cases, I'm just guessing here, they were probably supportive and happy to watch you get up and move forward and try something else. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, that's exactly um, how it was. It was usually, yeah, people lift you up and say, yeah, man, like I wasn't willing to try it or I get it and good effort or whatever. And then you walk away fulfilled because you got out of your comfort zone and again, just expedited learning about yourself and I think doing hard things or scary things is the number one way to grow. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you have some opportunities to kind of invest in yourself, reinvest in your business. Can you tell us a little bit about your business? So I know you you are an accomplished salesperson, a broker. You built a lot of skills. You built a lot of relationships. But what exactly is the anatomy of your business? Yeah. So I started with a company called Goosehead Insurance straight out of college. And I worked on the corporate side. I was a salesperson on the corporate side. I managed, moved into management, managed a team of corporate agents. I moved from Chicago where I started to help build out an office in Denver, a corporate office. And then I branched off to open my own agency. And so then from opening that agency, I was fortunate to have had a ton of experience with managing people and hiring people and everything comes along with that, good and bad. And yeah, I've been able to replicate that in my business right now. The capital that I talk about or higher priorities is scaling out, building more of a team, as well as some other people sell their books of business and insurance. And it's essentially like buying an annuity. And so a lot of times that can be a really good investment, especially if 
you buy that book of business at a multiplier of what it generates and then premiums double because that multiple goes down. That's so cool. But so your business is still, your personal agency is still affiliated with Goosehead or how does that work for the uneducated like myself? Totally. Yeah. So Goosehead has a corporate side and then they also sell franchises. So I bought my own franchise of Goosehead Insurance. So it's basically Goosehead Insurance dash the McFadden agency. Gotcha. So your employees are work for the McFadden agency, but you have the ability to get that Goosehead name and probably a lot of the resources mm-hmm. from them, their corporate side. Is that right? Yeah, we have their backing. They have billions of dollars in premium. So it's very easy for them to build relationships with insurance carriers, which we've recently not realized. We knew they were important, but carrier relationships, if you don't have them, it's very difficult to place business if nobody wants to place. But so anyways, they expedite relationships there. They're always onboarding new carriers. Uh, they help us with servicing and operational things, but yeah, it's an awesome company and an awesome backing to have behind us. Awesome. Congratulations. That's a, a lot of success you had building a career, building relationships and spinning it off into your own business. That's a, a dream many of us have. That's a, why a lot of us invest in real estates because it's something that we have personal equity in. And like you said, you watch your wealth grow over time, but starting and running a business is no joke. So congrats on that success. Thank you. Yeah. And to you the same. Been enjoying watching you, your outreach to a community and helping others accomplish those dreams. I know that's fulfilling for you personally and something that drives happiness and joy for you. And then also being able to, not that money is always a thing, but to monetize that and also be fulfilled and fulfill others. I think that's also something people strive for. So hats yeah, off. I really appreciate you saying. Absolutely. So one question to round it out. If you were brand new to the real estate game, you were just getting started, you knew that it was powerful, but you felt like now wasn't the right time. Would you get off the sidelines now or would you wait for a better moment? What would your advice be to someone who's on the fence about jumping in right now? I think it's just completely person to person. It's again, can you jump in right now? Do you have the resources? Yes. Rates are a little bit higher. Insurance is a little bit higher. Um, Have you found the right thing for you? I'm always against doing something just because it's a good thing to do. You've heard, but if you sit down and take a calculated risk and it's the right thing for you, there's never a wrong time to do that. And the way that it was expressed to me was, yeah, that learning curve thing. First one's the hardest. And yeah, what you learn in that year, if you barely cash flow it, if you don't cash flow it, if you end up having to sell it six months later because it's just not working out. What you're going to learn from that's going to pay dividends and all your future endeavors. I know that's a very indirect answer. I apologize, but yeah, I think it's just a balance of what you can take as a risk. And if you're there, I think it's the perfect answer because there is no one size fits all. And it's about becoming comfortable. If you've made it to 50 minutes into this podcast episode, my guess is that you are probably being pretty methodical and, and intentional about your decision of whether or not to invest which I think is the right thing to do. If you listen to an episode about insurance and how to understand inflating costs, downside risk and all that, you're going to be making a much more informed decision than if you're just like, yeah, the mortgage is 1500 bucks, the rent's 2000. Great. I'm making 500 bucks a month. Let's move on. That's that may or may not work. I would guess that approach probably works less often than it 
does. So yeah. anyway, this has been really insightful. I think you've shared a lot of concepts that people don't ordinarily hear. We've highlighted a few things from my experience that you helped guide me through, which once again, I very much appreciate. Where can other people find you? Are are they able to reach out and get the same type of service that, that I got? And, and how would you advise them to do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Just reach out directly uh, to my email or my cell number. Um, and then also, if you look up Goosehead Insurance, Ren McFadden, um, you'll come across my website and find us. Sounds good. I will post all that in the show notes. I highly encourage you to reach out to Ren. Like I said, he saved me a few thousand dollars just across the this most recent renewal cycle on my rentals. I'm sure he can either educate you or find you savings or both if you reach out to him. And Ren, thanks so much for your time. I'm looking forward to putting this out there. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. And yeah, I appreciate it a ton and have enjoyed working with you and would love to help out anybody that uh, comes our way. Sounds good. Thank you. 